Well, would you turn with me to Isaiah 7? Isaiah 7. We'll be almost entirely in the Old Testament this morning. While you're finding Isaiah 7, you recall that the Sunday that Jesus was raised from the dead, known to us forever now as the Lord's Day, his disciples were gathered together that evening, and John 20 records that Jesus came and stood among them. And the implication is, is that he did so instantly. He greeted them, and he said, Peace be with you. He showed them his wounded hands and his side, and they were so glad to see him. And again, he greeted them. John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then Jesus did something and said something very unique, very special. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, clearly this was not the actual coming of the Holy Spirit. John 7.39 tells us that the Holy Spirit won't come, wouldn't come upon the disciples until after Christ had been glorified, taken up into heaven. But what Jesus is doing here is giving them a preview. He just told the disciples that he's going to send them out to spread the gospel, the effect of which has continued on for 2,000 years to this very day. And he's telling them how they'll be empowered to do so. They will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. They'll receive the Holy Spirit In Acts 1, he promised them you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so Jesus was giving the disciples a a preview of the work of the Holy Spirit in their future. Now, obviously, what was future to them is history to us. The church of Jesus Christ ever since the day of Pentecost has been indwelt by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. We've seen the effects of this for all of church history. But in the same way that Jesus was giving the disciples a preview of their future with the Holy Spirit, Scripture gives us a preview of the work of the Spirit in our future, specifically the Spirit's work in the eschatological future, the the end times future, the time of the end of God's redemptive program. Now, in our quick Bible study run-through of the Holy Spirit in the past few Sundays, we looked at the Spirit in the past, We looked at the Spirit in the present. We took all day Sunday last week to do that. And today I want to close out this little tiny mini-series by looking at the Spirit in the future. And again, this is just to make sure we're all on the same page on this very important doctrinal issue. And so to look at the Spirit in the future, again, we're going to do somewhat of a Bible study today. We'll be going to a number of different texts. Now, I'd like to just show you five works of the Spirit in the end times. Five works of the Spirit in the end times. The first one we'll call the spirit empowering of Christ's return. The spirit empowering of Christ's return. Now, just to give a little background here, the early chapters of Isaiah portrayed the failed leadership of King Ahaz of Judah. The house of David is now presented as having been reduced to just a a quaking, faithless ruler. Isaiah 7 verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that means Israel, the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And so Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, is being attacked by an alliance between the king of Judah and the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. So it's, it's Jew against Jew. It's a civil war. And Ahaz is utterly faithless and he trembles in terror. But there's a contrast that we see. Turn a few pages over to Isaiah 11. And in Isaiah 11, the contrast to the failed house of David to Ahaz quaking in his sandals, we have a Davidic king who is coming in the future, who will be nothing like Ahaz. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This king who is coming is portrayed as a shoot, a new growth 
from the stump of Jesse. That is King David's father, of course. And this king, the descendant of King David, whom we all know by the name of Jesus, the king of all the kings, the Lord of all the lords, he'll rule the world in a way that's never before been seen. This kingdom, when he comes, will be after the great tribulation, but before the final state of the perfection in the new heavens and the new earth. And so there will be the the glorified saints on earth with him, that's us, But there'll still be difficulties that the king has to engage with, that this king ruling on earth, Jesus Christ, that he has to deal with. So what will be happening in this new kingdom? Well, first of all, he'll give perfect care for the needy of the earth. Verse 3, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So perfect care for the needy of the earth. The second thing that will be happening is perfect justice for the wicked. Perfect justice for the wicked, the second part of verse 4. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Not only perfect justice, but third, perfect righteousness and faithfulness will characterize his reign. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You recognize this verse. The Apostle Paul quoted this in his full armor of God in Ephesians 6. There's a fourth thing that will happen. Not only perfect care, perfect justice, perfect righteousness, but a restoration of a peaceful Garden of Eden-like kingdom. A Garden of Eden-like kingdom specifically characterized by the animal kingdom. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A changed creation. Who takes their three-year-old and says, go in the backyard and play with a wolf? Not only those four things, but there will be perfect teaching, perfect wisdom. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And you know this, the shoot of Jesse The one, humanly speaking, descended from Jesse, the the father of David, is now called the root of Jesse. The one, divinely speaking, who created Jesse. And so we we see him as the, the one who descends from Jesse as a human being, the one who, as God, created Jesse. But as the king of all the kings reigns with perfect care, with perfect justice, with perfect righteousness and faithfulness, with perfect restoration of parts of Eden, and perfect teaching of wisdom, who is vitally involved in the future reign of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, on the earth? Look back at verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In the inner Trinitarian relationship between God the Son and God the Spirit, the Son will rule by the Spirit of God, perfectly wise, perfectly understanding in His counsel, in His might, in His knowledge, in His fear of the Lord. In other words, always obeying His Father. Very clear here. Let me show you another text, Isaiah 42. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. And in Isaiah 42, we see the presentation of Messiah as the servant of the Lord. And once again, we see the Holy Spirit vitally involved. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, in this case, the Messiah is presented in his humility and in his helping role. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. 
He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, this was partly fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, but Christ hasn't yet established justice on the earth. Verse 4, he hasn't brought forth justice to the nations. Verse 1, that hasn't happened yet. But this total dominion of the earth yet to be, this will be by the Spirit's power. I have put my Spirit upon him. Turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. I find it ironic that all of our information we're going to look at this morning about the Spirit in the future comes from the Old Testament. I love prophecy. Now, in Isaiah 61, we see the coming Messiah presented now as the Redeemer, as the one to set his people free from their sin. And once again, who's the power, who's the influence behind the work of the Son of God in perfect Trinitarian harmony? Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this was fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. This part, Jesus himself explained this in his hometown of Nazareth. Luke 4, beginning in verse 16, reminds us, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, what I'm about to read, Jesus was likely reading from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so the English translation of that translation will seem slightly different than our version here, but it's the same passage. This is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's the same place we stopped a second ago. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this seems a little odd. Because Jesus stopped reading at the end of what our Bibles call the middle of verse 2. Why would he stop right there? Why didn't he keep going? Because the very next section is not fulfilled in his first coming. It's fulfilled in his second coming. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor... Skip to the second coming and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This speaks of the work of Messiah by the power of the Spirit, at the beginning of his reign on earth. And we'll come back to this in a moment because we're going to look at the restoration of Israel by the power of the Spirit. But this is important. The return of Christ, the reign of the King of kings and the Lord of all lords will be empowered by the mighty and perfect and omnipotent Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit empowering of Christ's return. There's another work of the Spirit. We'll call this the Spirit empowering of Israel's restoration. The Spirit empowering of Israel's restoration. Again in the Old Testament, turn with me to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. Just go to your right few pages. And specifically Ezekiel 36, 22. The Spirit empowering of Israel's restoration. Again, a little bit of background. Ezekiel was a prophet and a priest. He was exiled to Babylon in 597 B.C., just eight years after Daniel. Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Israel, as a nation, basically is dead. And the nation has been progressively dying, in fact. In 922 B.C., Israel split into two kingdoms, and as Jesus has famously said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. They continued in disobedience to God's loving covenant with them and the two kingdoms were were taken from them. The northern kingdom in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom in their final defeat 
in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. The kingdom was dead. And the people lamented this. Psalm 137, verse 1, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, that is, Jerusalem. Psalm 137, 4, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? In other words, we're, we're without a home, we're without a kingdom, we're without a king. But there's one important factor that we must never forget. And that is, once upon a time, there was a man named Abraham. And God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram in Genesis 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so because of God's faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham, God is going to act. And through Ezekiel, God tells his people what he's going to do. And now this begins to sound very familiar to us as believers in Christ in the new covenant. First, God promises to gather his people into a nation once again. Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now, there was certainly an incomplete and partial fulfillment when a few thousand Jews return from exile in the coming decades, but that's not the final fulfillment because something is going to happen to the nation that hasn't happened yet. And that is the the second part of this promise. Verse 25, God promises to change Israel from the inside out. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, that to enter the kingdom of God, a person must be born of water, born of the spirit. In other words, cleansed of sin and given a new heart by the spirit of God. And so God promises to gather his people as a nation. He promises to change Israel from the inside out. And third, God promises that the new Israel will be populated by people indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, this sounds very familiar to us as New Testament Christians. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And look at the repentant hearts of the coming age of Israel. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 stands as one of the clearest statements of the doctrine of repentance in all the Bible. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Now as we read through this, as Christians in the church age, you you might say, hey, that sounds like us. Yes, it does in many ways because we are recipients of God's kind promises to Abraham. Remember that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's us. We're about as far away from that land as we can get. We're recipients currently of what we might call kind of a partial fulfillment, a preview of the coming kingdom of Christ on earth. We enjoy all the new covenant blessings, which we uh, outlined in both messages last Sunday morning and evening, and yet there are still fulfillments that are on their way. They haven't arrived yet. And once again, we see that God's restoration of Israel, when Christ is reigning on the earth, this will include a a tremendous restoration of blessing and delight and wonders on the earth. Verse 29 of Ezekiel 36, I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. Verse 30, I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Verse 33, again these blessings. Thus says the Lord God, 
On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to increase their people like a flock. What a glorious future. And once again, who is at the center of all this action who's at the center of creating a new heart for the nation of israel the holy spirit the fact that the spirit of the lord gives ezekiel this message and then the spirit of god gives one of the most stunning visions and images found anywhere in the bible tells us of the central role of the spirit god's people are in exile They're hopeless. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 11. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. And so the Spirit of God in this spectacular vision and image shows what he will do with the dry, dead bones of Israel. And this is worth hearing. Verse 1 of chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me all around, led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Wow. Wow. A resurrected holy nation made up of the resurrected Israelites of all the ages by the power of the Spirit. It's the only description in the Bible of resurrection, by the way. The spirit of empowering of Christ's return, the spirit of empowering of Israel's restoration. Here's another work. The spirit of empowering of God's redeemed. The spirit empowering of God's redeemed. Let's go back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44 to look at the spirit empowering of God's redeemed. Isaiah 44. Now, last week we listed the tremendous spiritual blessings we have in Christ Jesus Blessings given by and through the Holy Spirit. But what's going to be happening, spiritually speaking, 
in the day when Messiah reigns on the earth during the millennial kingdom. What will believing Israel be characterized by, and by implication at least all believing Gentiles as well, since we're included in all the tremendous blessings of Israel? We get to partake as well. Well, God declares that he's going to come to their aid. He won't leave Israel in an unforgiven state. And with such tenderness and compassion and comfort, chapter 44, verse 2, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. How tender this is. I made you. I formed you when you were but a promise to an old man named Abraham. I will help you. Fear not. He calls them Jacob, my servant, meaning you belong to my household. He calls them Jeshurun. It means to be upright. This is a title of honor and endearment to someone with a righteous character. You see, God is seeing Israel not as they are, but he sees them as he intends them to become in the end. A perfectly righteous and upright people. He sees them through the lens of the imputed righteousness, the credited righteousness, even though it hasn't been achieved yet. He sees them through that lens. And now he gives them hope for a glorious day when salvation will come to them. Verse 3 For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Now, very often in the book of Isaiah, God promises to water the land. And there's no reason to not take those passages literally as actually bringing water. For example, Isaiah 41, 18, I will open rivers on the bare heights. I will make the wilderness a pool of water. What is that? That's water. Isaiah 35, 1, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, kind of a rose. But here, it's very clear that the picture of water is a direct metaphor. It's tied in metaphorically to an even more important event, and that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God is abundantly clear that he's speaking of ethnic Israel. Jacob, verse 1. Israel, verse 1. Jacob, verse 2. Jeshurun, verse 2. Jeshurun is a name that God uses for Israel four times in the Old Testament, always for Israel. Now, verse 3 reminds us of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. I'll just read it to you. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, if you recall on the day of Pentecost, when Peter was preaching from Joel chapter 2, he said that that prophecy was fulfilled. But you have to remember that in Scripture, prophecy can have a telescopic quality to it. In other words, there's a near partial fulfillment and a farther away full fulfillment. At Pentecost, all flesh, meaning all human beings, did not receive the Holy Spirit. Only some of them did. And the context of Joel 2 is the day of the Lord, the day of the earth's great tribulation. The Jews are receiving Christ as Savior and God is rebuilding now a saved ethnic Israel. We know this is the context because the following verses say, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors there shall be those whom the Lord calls. If you read Joel chapter 2, the the final verses, and Revelation chapter 6, it's very clear those are exactly the same events. Speaking of the same time period that hasn't happened yet. So when Peter said that Joel 2 was fulfilled, it is a partial fulfillment. So keeping in mind this metaphor of watering a thirsty land, verse 4, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This is a picture of spiritual life, spiritual vitality, coming alive after being a, a walking dead person. And now we see the turnaround. Israel, chapter 43, verse 22 Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. What a slam 
His own people have wearied of God. But now the turnaround, now Israel is obsessed with and captivated by and and enthralled by and enraptured by their glorious God. And now we get a picture of what the Israel of the future will be like. Verse 5, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Jews who once were Jews in name only are now becoming what Jesus called true Israelites, a true people of God through the Spirit of God as they should be. Now, what is this that another will write on his hand the Lord's? It was the custom of many pagans to tattoo the name of their God on their hands or maybe for a slave to inscribe the name of his owner on his hand, a sign of permanent allegiance. And it says that the name and name himself by the name of Israel. The faithful will name himself by the name. It's two different words. It means I will call myself as having a name after God. Do we have an example of this? What are we called? Christians. In Greek, little Christs. We are named after our God. Now, what is this? Verse 5. It, let me put it in terms we can understand. If you go downtown in Bakersfield today, and you just park your car in one of the dollar-per-minute parking lots that you can find there. And you just start walking around, and people of various walks of life are coming at you. And you stop one, and you say, I just want to tell you, I'm so thankful that I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I've, I've inscribed his name on my hand. Look! Now, what can happen to you? It might be a Christian who goes, Okay, me too, but that's a little weird. You don't have to do the whole tattoo thing. What's more likely to happen? More likely is that somebody's going to say, all right, you're kind of nuts. I'm going to go to the other side of the street right now. Let me tell you what's happening during this time. That you walk down the street and every person you run into says, aren't you glad for Christ? And you say, amen, I'm glad for Christ. Let's thank him. You run into somebody else. Aren't you glad to be in this kingdom by the grace of God? Yes, I am. And you run into this person and this person and this person and this person. And they all are are worshipers of Christ and they are, as it were, have as their hobby naming themselves after Christ. It's a Christian kingdom. Instead of now being, instead of being a nation weary of God, Israel is a nation passionate about their God. God's future for Israel is righteousness, imputed first through Christ and imparted later in actual righteousness. Now, this is very instructive to us. Why do we need to understand what's going to happen with Israel? Because Israel is the test case for the doctrine of election. If you don't believe the doctrine of election, look at verse 1 of chapter 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I'm really glad was smart enough to choose me. It's not what it says. Israel, whom I have chosen. You see, Israel is the test case for the doctrine of election. What happens to Israel will happen to Gentile believers. And God never, never, never gives up on those he's chosen. In the coming messianic kingdom... You'll be there with glorified bodies having been raised from the dead already and the Spirit of God will be so active. All of this is just to say this. The Spirit of God will be so active that according to Joel chapter 2, according to uh, Isaiah 44 verse 4, springing up among grass like willows by flowing streams, your very thoughts will be invaded by and saturated by the Spirit of God. You ever wake up from a nightmare and boy, say, boy, I'm glad that's not real? Do you realize that your very dreams will be saturated by the Spirit of God? Your old men will dream dreams, young men seeing visions. The Spirit of God will be so active in you that it's as if you're seeing the very mind of God all the time. What a joy. Listen very, very carefully to this. There is a tendency in almost every theological system to attempt to make a wide and unpassable divide between the physical and the spiritual, between the earthly and the heavenly. This is manifested in many different ways, not the least of which is de-emphasizing 
of the coming physical blessings on earth as somehow being less important than those things that are unseen. And this wrong belief is manifested in trying to spiritualize texts like I already read. Isaiah 35, 1, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and bloom or blossom like the crocus or the rose. Our beloved John Calvin, while staunchly defending the doctrines of grace, was not a fan of a restored Israel. He didn't believe in it. He says of Isaiah 35, 1, quote, This passage is explained in various ways. I pass by the dreams of the Jews who apply all passages of this kind to the temporal reign of the Messiah, which they have contrived by their own imagination. Instead, he says that this speaks of the fact that, quote, Christ enriches us in such a manner to increase his grace in us from day to day, as if somehow God actually changing the wilderness into a beautiful rose garden couldn't possibly be speaking in literal terms. Where did the separation of the spiritual and the physical come from? Is that a righteous, holy thing? No. It was brought on by the curse of sin. What does sin cause? Sin causes death. What is death? Death is the separation of the physical from the spiritual. That's what death is. And the physical dies and the spiritual is judged. After the curse, the physical was tainted with death. The the ground issuing thorns instead of crops and the human body slowly dying from the moment of conception. And the spiritual was tainted in that we're born with a sin nature, spiritually separated from God by sin. So listen very, very carefully. If God, through Christ, has redeemed our spirits, our souls, doesn't it follow that all his original intentions for creation will be redeemed as well? All of them. The Bible clearly promises a physical resurrection for all who love God. Romans 8 promises that when mankind is fully redeemed, meaning salvation has come to all the elect, then the creation itself will be restored as well. And in the millennial reign of Christ on earth, we see the beginning of that recreation. It's not to the level it will be during the new earth after that time, but certainly a magnificent renewal of creation. And that brings us to the next work of the Holy Spirit in the eschatological future. We've seen the spirit empowering of Christ's return, the spirit empowering of Israel's restoration, the spirit empowering of God's redeemed. But I want to talk to you about the spirit empowering of earth's renewal. The spirit empowering of earth's renewal. Go back a few chapters to Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32, specifically verse 14. Verse 14 describes the desolation of Israel and Jerusalem because of sin. Verse 14, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. But when the Spirit is poured out on the nation as a whole, verse 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Listen, Jews for 3,500 years have been oppressed and murdered. This is a phenomenal promise. In verse 18 tells us that this peaceful habitation will be secure. It'll be quiet. So what's happening? Far from some sort of super spiritual arrogant idea that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. No. Now by the spirit, the heavenly connects to the earthly. It connects. In fact, just kind of for grins here, turn with me to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, I'd like to spend a moment to clear something up that's related to this. I read to you from Joel 2 a moment ago, but I want to point out something that's very important because Joel chapter 2 is somewhat of the flagship chapter of the charismatic movement. I want to show you something important concerning the charismatic belief system and what they call the latter reign of the Spirit of God. The latter reign. And this comes from Joel 2, verse 23. 
Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. Now, according to the latter rain theology of the charismatic belief system, the former or the earlier rain is the raining down of the spirit at Pentecost and in the early church. And then the latter rain is supposedly the current work of the Spirit's outpouring beginning in the 20th century, most importantly characterized by what they said was speaking in tongues. And this rain is said to be the symbolic, uh, symbolic picture of the work of the Spirit. And they say this again because of verses 28 and 29, which we've already read about the pouring out of the Spirit. But we've already seen the pouring out of the Spirit in the future kingdom of Christ, if I could put it this way, is routine. That's just normal. What else is characteristic of the coming kingdom of Christ? The physical blessings, the blessings to the earth that God gives to an obedient people. And in fact, the bookends of verse 23, verses 21 and 22, and then 24 and 25 prove this. Verse 21, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Then verse 24, the threshing floors are full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. In other words, the curses on the land that God brought because of Israel's sin and rebellion, the famine, the drought, and the locusts, it's all going to be removed. And so in the context of the coming millennial kingdom of Christ, and after uh, giving you the fact that the two verses before and after Uh, speak of the blessings on the land what is the latter rain get ready for this amazing revelation the latter rain speaks of water which falls from the sky to water the crops ask any jew what's the former rain well the former rain is rains in the autumn what's the latter rain latter rain is rain in the spring it's that simple This is God's blessing in the future age, a time when abundance comes once again to the earth. Remember in Elijah's time, God's discipline for unbelief and idolatry, what did he do? No rain for three and a half years. And what he's saying here is when you are worshiping Christ in his kingdom, that will never be an issue again. The charismatic latter rain movement is literally an entire movement based on what is fundamentally a hermeneutic deception and an intentional misrepresentation of scripture. What's going to be happening? Well, because the Spirit of God is reigning, R-E-I-G-N-I-N-G, in the hearts of all Israel under the rule of Messiah King on earth, one of the benefits is that every autumn and every spring, it will be reigning, R-A-I-N-I-N-G, on the formerly cursed land. In fact, God told Amos, just how bountiful the produce of the land is going to be in Amos 9. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. This is a somewhat of an exaggerated picture. This is the picture that a, that a, a crew of guys are going through the vineyards and they're picking grapes and they're looking back and they're already growing again. Just crazy prosperity. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. That's the work of the Spirit, actively blessing the people of Messiah. And why would God do this? Why? Well, because he promised Abraham somewhere around 2000 BC that he would provide a nation to be blessed forever. And then in 1406 BC, he made a promise to Israel what would be happening when they're obedient to him, what they will do during the reign of Christ. And I won't read the whole passage, but Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14 says things like, Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. In other words, you'll always have food. And you read through these blessings. 
basically in the millennial kingdom of Christ, for all those who love Christ, everything you touch turns to gold. Because that's our God. And listen, if that sounds like a glorious world, you would be correct. And as a believer, you will partake in that world. That is your future. It's the spirit empowering of Christ's return, the spirit empowering of Israel's restoration, the spirit empowering of God's redeemed, the spirit empowering of earth's renewal. We'll do one more. The spirit empowering of your rejoicing. The spirit empowering of your rejoicing. I, I don't know why it is exactly, but for some reason... The average American Christian that I've asked this question to, we tend to picture the work of the Spirit as coming to an end somehow. And I don't know why that is exactly, but the Spirit will actually cause eternal, perfect rejoicing. And let me give you two ways to think about this. The first way is the completed work of the Spirit. It doesn't mean His work comes to an end. It means that there are parts of His work that are completed. I'll just give you a sample list. Uh, The conviction of sin will be complete. No more conviction because sin is defeated. The baptism of the Spirit where people are placed into the body of Christ, that will be complete because all who have believed on Christ are with Him and with His people forever. The Spirit will never again be quenched by those who resist the preached word. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 The Spirit will never again be grieved by those who speak corrupting talk. Ephesians 4 The Spirit will no longer be restraining sin in our lives because sin has now been eradicated. And he won't have to guard the true gospel any longer as he did in the age of sin. 2 Timothy 1.14 says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit, that is of the gospel entrusted to you, that the gospel is guarded perfectly. So many things the Spirit has begun will be completed, but the Spirit will have eternal work as well. He'll forever indwell you. Forever and ever. Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Therefore, you are always indwelt. Always. Our perfect resurrection bodies. Did you know that is the work of the Spirit? 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 2, talks about groaning for our heavenly dwelling that that we we groan in our bodies and we long for our heavenly dwelling meaning our resurrected bodies and verse 5 says he who has prepared us for this very thing is god who has given us the spirit as a guarantee the spirit of god in you now guarantees that there will be a day in eternity when you can look in the mirror and go finally the spirit guarantees our perfect christ-like character 2 Corinthians 3.18 speaks of the process that has begun now and will be completed by the Spirit. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that according to 1 John 3.2 when you see Christ the Spirit of God will complete your sanctification. And by the way, the spiritual temple of Christ's people will be complete. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This body is more properly understood as the people of God as a whole, because all the pronouns you are plural. It's the church. Now the people of God will perfectly glorify God, because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And with all of this continued work of the Spirit, this will enable us to perfectly rejoice in the Spirit. You ever wake up one morning and just say, just once, I want to have a day start to finish that is characterized by nothing but joy, rejoicing, and happiness. You know what that's called in the coming kingdom? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And of course, this spirit-empowered rejoicing will be centered on the person and the presence and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is the one that the Spirit always points us to. If you want to be part of an eternal future that includes the spirit-empowering of Christ's return, the spirit-empowering of Israel's restoration, the spirit-empowering of God's redeemed, the spirit-empowering of earth's renewal, and the spirit-empowering of your rejoicing, all centered 
on the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then remember the work of the Spirit, as Jesus said in John fifteen twenty six. that when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Spirit of God would point you to the Son of God. The Spirit of God would point the lost to the cross. The Spirit of God would point the lost to the blood of Christ. And so to enjoy all these future benefits of the Spirit, you must come humbly to the Son of God for forgiveness of sin and the redemption of your sinful souls. Do you know who gives the last gospel presentation of the entire Bible? The future Spirit-inundated church of Jesus Christ called the bride gives the last plea to the lost to come to faith. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Today, right now, you may ask the Holy Spirit to help you according to Galatians 5 to walk in the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And sometimes you're successful and sometimes you're not. But there will be a day when the Spirit of God so inundates the very core of your being that every thought you think, every word you say, every deed you do is driven by and perfected by the Spirit of God. Doesn't that make you long for that day? Makes me long for that day. Let's pray. Our Father, our future is bright. It is bright. In many ways, Lord, we are jealous of our dearest senior saints, those closest to the kingdom. We're envious, Lord, because these things we've seen in your word will be in their grasp. For those who are young in the Lord, physically young or spiritually young, Lord, I pray that they would grasp these truths and begin to look toward heaven, look toward our future made so glorious by the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, never again to have to convict us of sin, but simply to guide and to direct that every word we say would be a right word, every thought, every dream directed by the Spirit. Everything we do, perfectly spiritual. We are so thankful for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for regenerating us. Thank you for opening our eyes to see the beauties of Christ. Thank you for opening our ears to understand the gospel. And thank you for opening our hearts that we might believe. We owe much to you. Thank you for pointing us to Christ, our King of Kings, the one whom we worship and adore and who is the focus of what you would have us to to know and to love about our God. We love you and thank you. We pray for a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who has yet to be regenerated, yet to come to faith in Christ. Holy Spirit, do that now. We pray in Christ's name, amen.